Welcome to InsureTech Insider, coming to you live from the 11FS offices in WeWork Oldgate. I'm Sarah Kachansky from 11FS, and today's show is a special edition. We're going to be digging into the latest InsureTech news from around the world. So, back by popular request is my colleague and today's co-host, David Breer. How are you doing today, David? That is a barefaced lie, isn't it? And back by popular demand. No, never, I'm sure. But uh, but I'm back nevertheless. So that's that's good. So, uh, but no, really, really good. Um, lots of fun things on this week and the week is rapidly disappearing. <laughs> We've been talking about insurancey stuff, as you said. I have. Uh, it's perfectly on topic. Uh, we're also joined by some great guests. First up, we have Leah Noninger, Research Analyst at Business Insider Intelligence. How are you today, Leah? I'm very good. Thank you. Pleasure to be here today. Thank you for coming. And making a return visit is James York, founder at Worry and Peace. How are you today, James? I'm very good indeed. Thanks for having me. Perfect. Well, welcome to the show. Let's get on with the news. So the first story today comes from TechCrunch. Uh, The story is that Hong Kong-based One Degree gets $25.5 million in a Series A round to make insurance more accessible, and they're going to start with pet insurance. So this company offers an online insurance platform that lets consumers purchase personal lines, or will rather, uh, let customers purchase personal lines and health insurance products. It's all done via an app, which automates both claims processing, policy management and customer service. Um, 50% of the investment was pledged by investors pending regulatory approval through the Hong Kong Insurance Authority's new fast track licensing program, um, which is exclusively for online only insurers. The company also participated in Cyberport, which is a good name. Um, That's the Hong Kong government's startup incubator. Um, I've been there, by the way. Amazing place. Like truly amazing place, Cyberport. Does Cyberport, does the name make sense? It does. Yeah, it's... uh, it does definitely make make sense out there. It is a port and it's all about cyber. So, you know, it was very literal on that one. But uh, anyway, sorry something. to interrupt. I was imagining something Star Trekky. The company is going to use its Series A for tech development. Uh, it's going to start pet insurance um, and then move on to new products and marketing. The funding will also serve as risk, risk capital once it actually gets um, into launching full insurance businesses. So what do we think of this story? Which what, what elements, what aspects do we find most interesting or in fact least interesting about this story? Super interesting. They're starting with pet insurance because most insurers that makes sort of non slash no money. So you know, interesting point that they're actually raising money to put a business case together to make a element of an insurance line that's usually not very you know very profitable. Profitable. So I looked into this because animals, and apparently pet insurance is only offered by two companies in Hong Kong. And then it's directly and not through brokers. That's despite the fact that there are more than 500,000 pet dogs and cats in Hong Kong. Um, And they are seriously expensive animals. These things are like super, super pedigree creatures that are worth thousands and thousands of dollars. So it it kind of makes sense to me. I definitely had an alarming amount of experiences in Hong Kong recently where you think it's a baby and a thing and it turns out to be a dog. So that's probably one of those ones where, yeah, it was either... (laughs) It was either very ugly children or it was a pet. So, uh, but uh, but yeah, if they're basically pushing everything around in a pram, then maybe it does cost a lot of money. I'm not sure. It's a high cost of living out there, isn't it? And you you know, you guys mentioned the penetration stats in the show notes of how many people are buying it already. Seems like a big opportunity area. But I was staggered by the fact that only 42 percent are buying it in the UK as well. So as I know there's a few insure techs doing it in the UK, but obviously their funding from Hong Kong is you know it's in stratospheric proportions isn't it compared to the uk i wonder if it's it must be increasing in the uk though because we're we're in, you know we're increasingly sort of catching a similar bug aren't we where we're buying increasingly more elaborate breeds of 
dog that costs more and more money type thing. Whereas before, I remember growing up with like random mongrels that you were, not that you didn't care if little Sammy disappeared type thing, but it didn't cost you 10 grand to buy another one, you know? Well, we, I mean, if anybody is actually interested in pet insurance, we have a pet insurance show, <laughs> which you can go back and listen to. Um, which, and which, I, which, which I stand by. I bought pet insurance, by the way. We're a responsible pet well, David will tell you all about why he has pet insurance on that on that particular episode. Um, Leah, what did you think? You were you kind of nodding when when we said it's an interesting decision to go with this first. Yeah, I was thinking that if you sell pet insurance first, I'm not sure how well I trust my pet insurer to also offer me life insurance. That might be it. Might be better the other way around. If you offer life insurance first, I'd rather trust them with my pet as well. That's that's very true. Yeah, it's it's easier to come down than it is to to sort of go up, isn't it? Is this it, a know? brand equity mistake? I agree. I think that's a good point. I, yeah, I was just wondering whether that's like that's an interesting approach. I thought I'm not sure if it's going to work or not, but just. I wonder how much of this is them proving the platform, you know, being in a situation where they can sell uh, sell direct in this way and actually create the technology because twenty like twenty five million pounds, uh, no twenty five point five million dollars to do this sounds like a lot of money to it me. Yeah. So it'll be interesting to see what they're going to be doing with it. How much is going to be tied down? Because you mentioned it's also going to include the red, the red cap, effectively. I was going to take Leo's point and sort of turn it on its head and say, well, actually, but if you're trying something and then you don't, people aren't getting the money they need to save their pets' lives, that's probably going to be less problematic for the regulator than if they aren't getting the money they need to save their own lives, which is very morbid of me. But it does go back to the idea of testing a platform. I think um, the RSPCA might get in touch on that one, but uh, every life H- is equal. HKPCA? Um, I, I, think, I think it's interesting. What I do think is really interesting, actually, and we talked about Hong Kong quite recently. In fact, even on the last uh, FinTech Insider, on our last The Sister podcast to this show, um, that the Hong Kong uh, regulators are doing a lot, making it much easier for new companies to break into every aspect of financial services. So um, the HKMA, which is the Monetary Authority, has uh, done a lot with virtual banking licenses, and I'm quite pleased to see that they're doing this insurance as well. So our next story today um, is that Munich, again from TechCrunch, Munich Re has bought an IoT startup for $300 million, um, which is quite a nice sum of money. The reinsurance giant's HSB subsidiary, uh, which specialises in engineering insurance, has bought Berlin-based, I'm going to say this wrong, Relayer. Leah, you speak German. Relayer? Um, I have never heard this word before. Relayer? <laughs> it sounded better when you said it. Yeah. Um, Had a ring to it. Uh, which helps industrial companies unlock data insights from machinery using IoT devices. So basically, you use a device to tell the, the business owner when the machine's going to fall apart before it falls apart. The technology is already used by around 130 businesses. Um, really interestingly, they've already come out and said, Munich has already come out and said that they envisage a joint business model here. So um, it's going to be tech solutions, risk management, data analysis, and financial instruments. So it's not just going to be one line. They actually see building a whole business around this, which I, I think is really fascinating. Anybody else? Completely. You know, this is, you know, continual trend towards preventative measures rather than being in a situation where just you're mopping up the problems when it when it happens because it's way less expensive for them and for the people that are actually selling this stuff to in the first place. So like, man, that's a lot of money, but I can kind of see if they've got 130 businesses already using this at a decent scale, then maybe it's not that much really, given, you know, the the sort of tenure if it works. You know, I, I see this being a really interesting thing. Like I, Kind of coming back to though, the, like the amount of places that this is starting to happen though, like insurance and bizarrely, like 
Sarah, we were talking about this earlier on, but the amount of things that are happening in the end-to-end insurance space, which is kind of far more interesting than the, the, the banking context, really. You know, we're seeing relatively unheard of slash enabled to pronounce companies that are coming in and uh, being able to kind of, uh, you know, garner a, you know, not a, not a massive base for, from a customer's perspective, but a pretty decent one to go for $300 million. Like, you know, how many people can sort of go and do that? Would you take that money, James, if somebody offered you that? Yeah, I think for 130 clients. It depends on the, the deal value of each of those. I, I, I do a bit of work with HSB, and I know they're an engineering specialist, and what you can imagine some of the, the premium capital equipment they're insuring. Yeah. Uh, you know, yeah. 300 million might not be much if, if uh, you know, a faulty robot burns down a whole factory <laughs> somewhere. And, you know, so it's a good moat, isn't it, to add the risk management into their products rather than disintermediation. It's just the USP in my mind. And obviously they see something in it to pay that kind of a multiple, but... It's a lot. I just wanted to say my fact, but I know what HSB stands for, and it's Harvard Steam Boilers. That makes me so happy because it makes sense. I, I'm sorry. I know that people know that, but like I found this out and I love a random fact. Um, the thing is, with which I find really interesting in this, is that is this Munich Re making a move to stop themselves being disintermediated? Because, now bear with me here. If you have a comp- if you're a company and you're using all these IoT devices and you find a way to analyze all that data and you know in advance when something's going to break down, do you actually need insurance or do you just make sure you've got enough money put by to make sure that you can repair those things or replace those things before they break down? So do you actually need the insurance in that circumstances? No, but and I read this and I thought, do you know, that's a great question. But in my view, there's got to be some sort of Newtonian scientist that can calculate <laughs> this for me. But there's some physics to risk. I don't think the risk disappears. It just changes form. So oh, maths, the risk is migrating now to their own asset. So they're going to have to somehow ensure the risk that their coders have got it wrong. And obviously, so the risk just propagates elsewhere. But but yeah, like you're disintermediating yourself from one distribution vertical but maybe another one might emerge and that's maybe where you need to get ahead of the game but uh, but i don't i don't think it removes the risk it this this is about like it, you know we keep coming back to this a lot and like every time i'm here i'm tr- pretty sure i beat this drum but you know insurance is a risk game you know being in the situation where you can essentially isolate that and gain as much data as you can about predicting that risk is the game um, so all they're doing really here is being able to sort of try and see as much in the, the future as they can to limit the risk. So this isn't going to stop the, the risk of a meteor blowing through the factory and like killing everybody type thing. But so there's always going to be a need for insurance. Um, but you're starting to, to limit what the insurance is, meaning you can offer better premiums, meaning you've got uh, actually a completely new business line opportunity that actually they haven't been doing for, you know, 100, 200 years or whatever. Churn is the enemy, right? So if it reduces that, then it's got to be good. Well, yeah, you know, stickiness in this case, if you're going to the point of uh, deploying sensors in your factory to, you know, give that level of engagement with your insurance provider, then actually, like you say, the stickiness of doing this must be, you know, through the roof, really. Yeah, I, I think the um, the other interesting thing is in talking about, you know, the levels of risk. When the last episode of InsureTech Insider we did, which would be episode 23, I look behind me. Thank you for the new poster. Um, we're talking about catastrophe insurance and we're talking about all these amazing, you know, possible catastrophes like hurricanes and, and meteors hitting you. And then um, one gentleman said, well, actually, the biggest catastrophe is when your IT system goes down. And everybody kind of went, 
oh my god, yes. So even if you've got an IoT that tells you when your robot's going to go over, uh, sorry, any IoT device that tells you when your robot might set fire to your factory, have you got an IoT device that tells you your IT system's going to fall over because somebody unplugged something to plug in their phone and it took ages for the system to reboot, which actually is what happened at British Airways. Well, well, how do you how do you classify that as well? Like Slack went down for like 25 minutes this week it's and it was, it was a catastrophe in the office, wasn't it? Like I had to get up and walk and talk to people. It was weird. <laughs> you should see us trying to do a podcast when there's no Slack. It's carnage. Our next story today comes from Insurance Age and the story is that Lloyds of London have launched their sandbox. So uh, Lloyds' new innovation sandbox has been dubbed Lloyds Lab. Very catchy. I like the alliteration. Um, it's selected 10 startups from over 200 applications. Um, they will join its first cohort starting soon. I haven't got the date in front of me. That's an error. Among those chosen, uh, again, this goes back to the point that Dave was making in the insurance. You can like pick from the huge spectrum of technology that's out there. They've got a company called Layer, which is an AI-powered platform that offers faster access to small businesses buying liability insurance. Drop-in, an on-demand live video streaming platform to streamline insurance inspections and catastrophe response assessment using mobile phones and drones. And I think this one is ICED, but it's got a complicated combination of, of lowercase and uppercase uh, letters in the wrong order. Somebody was definitely just trying to buy a domain at that point yeah. when they were doing uh, spelling on that one. Um, which is a cloud-based platform that enables large insurance companies to interact across borders to in order to arrange insurance cover for multinational corporations. I think... The variety of companies just in those three kind of tells you that Lloyd's are probably onto a good thing here. Mm. Yeah, well, it's it's amazing how many applications that they've had from so many different geographies. And then, like you say, it's a there are just infinity different op- opportunities in this space. You know, in, in the banking sector, we've seen slices by business division. Here, we're seeing you know tiny little wafer thin slices of uh, of uh, you know bits of insurance kind of coming through. But you know, most of these. Again, though, going back to that point before about data, you know, these are around um, shortening access to points to data or or leveling up the level of intelligence that you actually have, which is ironic given the inability to get that sentence out and the lack of intelligence. Um, but um, so I think there's there is consistency, but actually they're just addressing tiny little slithers of the process, aren't they? I, I want to see more data on the 164 that didn't get in. Like how many of those were distribution side or as we've seen here, they've they've really mixed it up nicely, haven't they? There's there's another startup in there called Insuracore who are doing appetite stuff, a bit like Kodiak in the US. Um, so I think it's a really fascinating mix. And actually, if I can relate it to the two previous segments, of course. if you look at the numbers, that Hong Kong new insurer, $22 million, an exit for the German ecosystem of $300 million, it scares me a little bit that these numbers are coming in for early stage companies and an exit because that money's going to go into the German IoT stroke insurtech kind of scene. Uh, and, you know, I think our biggest raise in the UK is, is under that Hong Kong startup we talked about. So it's good that Lloyd's are, are bringing more forward, but did the other 164 odd not make it because they weren't funded enough? You know, what was the, I think they, there's a, there's a failure play there that we need to get a bit more information on because I'm fascinated by that bit. And if there's anyone out there listening that was part of the 164, then LinkedIn and drop me a line. Data. Yeah, I also found it was interesting that um, Lloyd's was looking at all different kinds of insurance processes. So they're really looking into new technologies and all kinds of um, 
insurance processes in that way. So it's it's good to see that they're broadening their scope in that way. You mean kind of, um, so they're looking at how they write the insurance as well as how they use the data. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think I think it's um, the joy of insurance. Somebody said to me the other day, like, InsureTech is boring. And I was like, I wish people would stop saying that. They've got drones, for goodness sake. We have drones in InsureTech. Like, FinTech doesn't have drones. Um, There's quite a few drones, actually. It's <laughs> good. Um, but the but the idea that you can use drones and then you can use like um, you know a, a multinational platform. Well, what other applications does a multinational platform have? Many many different applications. So I agree with what you're saying, James. That I think maybe in the UK we're a little bit behind when it comes to kind of funding these companies and encourage these encouraging these companies. But I think what this does show is that we are at least getting there with our... Um, the numbers are amazing. Yeah. You know, 200, but when we don't have that kind of seed income and capital there. Um, you know, it's weird. I was in around Leadenhall Market today and I actually saw an underwriter walking to Lloyd's with a stamp in his right hand. Because I used to be a junior broker in Lloyd's and I couldn't believe it. I knew this guy. He was, you mean uh, like a rubber stamp? He, had his, he wow. had his stamp for his line and obviously they all have their, their fountain pens and he still had it in his hand and I'd, I'd hoped beyond hope, having not been in there broking for a long time, that they would be a thing of the past, but he had it in his hand and he works for a big company, very big company. Oh my goodness. I mean, like, we, we've had, uh, we did a Lloyd's of London show and oh my goodness, some of the processes they were describing, I mean, as Leah said there, it's really interesting to see or exciting to see that they're trying to modernise these processes, but some of the processes just within Lloyd's of London for how they create new lines and for how that market works. I was just like, it's literally almost like a man stands on a wooden box and waves a bell around and that's how it works. But Lloyds of London are not the only ones who are trying to encourage uh, startups in the insurtech space. Also from Insurance Age uh, is the story that Zurich has launched a competition to find cutting-edge startups, which is just another way of saying it has its own sandbox. Um, the Swiss insurer has launched the Zurich Innovation World Championship, uh, a global competition where the winners gain the chance to use their products for Zurich customers in selected countries. We spoke with Mark Budd, Head of Innovation at Zurich, to find out more. Welcome to the show, Mark. How are you doing? I'm good. Thank you, Sarah. Thanks for having me. So could you start off by giving us a quick overview of uh, your who you are and what your role is at Zurich? Sure. So I'm Mark Budd. I head up our, our innovation function in the UK. I am responsible for a couple of things. One, firstly, is trying to allow our organization to explore ideas at low cost and at pace outside our traditional change programs. Um, and we do that via a function we've set up recently called the Innovation Foundry, whereby we'll take ideas from various parts of our organization and run them through our processes where we test them for value at various different stages, failing fast the ideas that don't quite stack up commercially and moving at pace for the ones that are really good so we can get those out at scale. That's very much the ideas part of it. The other part is a cultural piece where we're trying to further embed awareness around digital, awareness around of innovation in our markets um, to try and lift the bar of the organization with regards to, I guess, digital savviness. But it, it it's more about just a general understanding of, of what digital is, what some of the benefits are, and getting that out to our people. Because we, we still believe that the people are the best place to come up with the ideas. We just need to arm them with better information. Perfect. So, um, you know, on that, on that note, um, you guys recently launched your uh, new competition, the Innovation Competition. Um, could you tell us a little bit more about that, how it works, and how that fits with, uh, you know, those goals that you've just described for us? Of course. So, so yes, very recently we've launched our Zurich Innovation World Championships. Uh, and the idea here is to reach out to our startup, to the startup community right the way across the globe. And we're looking for entrants for startups with a reasonably established uh, business model. 
And we're looking for startups to help us in four particular areas. The first of those is mobility. The second one is smart homes or buildings. The third one is digital health. The fourth one is financial planning. And we also have created a wildcard entry for anyone who thinks they've got some really specific capabilities that might that might help Zurich in those specific markets. The reason we're doing that is because it's not a choice to just go to the startups or just go internally. It's part of our broader innovative strategy, I guess. Uh, And the idea here is that we simply go out to startups, recognizing that some of these guys have capabilities um, that we perhaps don't have and try to bring them into Zurich. The benefit for us is that we get to see new emerging technologies fast and perhaps get a competitive edge. The, the benefit for the startups is that they, they get to engage with Zurich. They, the winners of this competition could, will receive some capital and, of course, the global brand exposure that we can give them. Uh, the competition itself is made up uh, similar to a World Cup knockout type scenario. We've got four regions. <laughs> yeah. We've got four regions. We've got um, Europe in the Middle East, North America, LATAM and APAC, and each in each of those countries, the startups will apply and be slotted into one of those regions. There is then a regional assessment where the winners of each region, so that would be the UK, um, will go on to play off into the European round, at which point we'll play off against the European countries. There's a winner from that round. And in the final, there'll be four entrants in the final. Uh, and that's a global uh, final, if you like. And at that point, we will award gold, silver and bronze awards for the various startups. Um, the timeline on that is we're looking for um, entrance in the UK to close 28th of September. We'll have finished the regional round by the end of October. The, the Europe and Middle East round will be finished by the end of November. And we'll be looking to to have done the fine, the global final and made the award sometime in February. And so the, the um, companies that win and end up in that global final, am I correct in thinking that they get access to, to Zurich customers? I correct, am I correct in thinking it's a kind of a joint uh, proposition going forward? So it's not just you hand the money and then say bye. It's kind of you guys will work alongside them. Absolutely. And the intention here is to, to fund those guys to, to let them do it, but absolutely to do it with a view to helping us and our customers. Absolutely. And how does this fit in with, um, so this, you're also doing a number of other things, you sort of mentioned a couple already, but um, how does this fit with uh, the work you do with sort of incubators and accelerators? What's the difference here? Uh, you know, why did you decide to do this as well? So so in this instance, yeah, we've, we've actually gone to some of our incubators and accelerators to help us find the startups. So this isn't, um, it's in addition to, and, it, and it's partly complementary. Um, in this particular example, we've gone out and said we're looking for areas of specialism in the in the areas I've described. Whereas perhaps in the accelerator programs, it's a bit it's a bit more of a broad play, and we're we're looking at opportunities, saying how could we make that work in our business? What line of business would it fit into? In this example, we're very specifically saying we're looking for people who can help us with these particular technologies. There's certainly some overlap with what we do in the the accelerators, but it is a slightly different approach. Perfect. Well, thank you so much. Um, that sounds really exciting, especially given its global nature. So I would encourage any of the insurtechs who are listening to, to get in touch. Um, if people do want to get in touch with you, Mark, how, how I mean, how can they get in touch with you personally? Uh, do you have a Twitter handle? Perhaps you can share with us or how can they get um, more information on the competition? So more information on the competition is uh, um, zurich.com forward slash Z-I-W-C. You'll get all the information on what the competition is about there and and a link about and tell you how you can apply. If people would like to contact me direct, the best way to do that is via LinkedIn. Thank you so much for joining us on InsureTech Insider. Um, we hope to speak to you again soon. Thank you, Sarah. 
I know back in episode 18, James, you and I were on a really fascinating conversation about the the benefits of taking backing from corporates and from going these startup programs. This to me sounds like this would be really beneficial to a startup if I was looking to sort of get my foot in the door. It, it's global to start with. And obviously Zurich UK, I think Amanda Blanc is going there too. And she did a lot of good things at AXA. Uh, with regards to InsureTech as well. So no, I think it's a, it's a great proposition. Although I have to say, when they announced it, I kind of had in my head like eight mile pitch battles, uh, you know, <laughs> and I'm thinking someone has to make that. So that maybe 11FS can do that. Amazing. Gamification of pitches. Yeah. So God, you've given cool. him an idea. Yeah, yeah. I like, I'm away now. We need to do that right so now. So good PR. So no, I think it's it's be interesting to see what comes out. Obviously, Zurich will probably look to new propositions and, and distribution rather than the things that Lloyds have maybe done, but mm-hmm. I, I might be wrong. It's good to kind of make it a competition um, because actually like being in a situation where there is a winner, like you are actually announcing a thing has happened and, you know, you're you're actually in a situation where you're creating, you know, you're announcing something that you think will have an impact for your business. It feels to me like they're actually doing it for the right reasons at that point. You know, this isn't like arbitrary PR. This is not to be looking to be innovative, but they're going to pick something that will actually have impact for their company. Um, and that should be the reason why most people are getting into this stuff right yeah no absolutely and i think the uh, the fact that you know it's having both an impact for zurich because they're actually going to going to actually get to play with it something practically in their hands and impact for the startup for actually having those customers to play with is um it sounds like the best of both worlds great yeah i was basically just going to agree with you that um it's great news for the insure techs that will actually um get access to the customers of zurich because also being backed by zurich is such great news for uh, a startup because it will give um trust from your customers mm-hmm. so yeah I think that'll be great for them yeah it's one of those things we talked about before isn't it James like if you've got Zurich behind you it, it can absolutely inspire trust you're like Zurich trust them so I should trust them I mean there are some downsides to that which we won't go into today because that was a fearsome debate um, but as I said if you do want to hear that go back yeah and I think to Toby's with Zurich isn't he from Lacquer no you know it, it's prestigious isn't it Zurich a, a fantastic business and actually interestingly I think they've waited to deploy something like this and looked at all the other different models so that obviously tells you that they've really thought hard about it which is good I do like it when they think hard about things before they do them. So our next story comes from Starling, and unsurprisingly is about Starling Bank, partnering with a life insure tech called Anorak, which is one of my favourite names of an insure tech ever. So Starling customers can now access Anorak's life insurance advice services through the bank's marketplace. So this is really interesting how this model works, or I think it is. I'm I'm sure people have different opinions. But Anorak will analyse the customer's bank transactions and then offer them advice on how much life cover they need, if at all, for how long and why. Um, The insurance policies themselves actually come from major insurance. So to a certain extent, they're almost like a, a... a a more advanced um, uh, price comparison website. What's really nice to hear, though, is that Anorak participated in Starling's inaugural open banking hackathon back in April 2017. So they they obviously learnt something if Starling have invited them back. Um, I should point out that we also saw Yolt, which is the financial services aggregator partner with Home Life, which is a home insurance company, again, using the open banking technology, which is kind of core to these integrations. Um, that was on episode 251 of Fintech Insider, if anybody wants to hear that. Um, so there's a lot of these kind of banks partnering with insurance companies using that open banking technology. Is this kind of a good thing for the insure techs? Is this a better thing for the banks? Like, what do we think about this? I think there's a few interesting things on this one. So firstly is like Starling Bank, you know, depending on who you believe, somewhere between zero and 80,000 customers. So, you know, actually being in a situation where you have a, you know, let's say 80,000 customers uh, who are maybe using it as a secondary account rather than a primary account. 
being in a situation where you can then start to use that transactional behavior to predict the level of life insurance cover you need seems like a bit of a leap to me. Um, second part of that is being in a situation where you start knowing that you're going to be changing my life insurance premium based on what I'm buying, then I'm going to start using my Monzo card to buy that Burger King. Because like, if it's starting to, like, I'm literally going there straight after here. We smelled it in the the tube earlier on, Sarah, and it was amazing. So um, Vegetarian disagrees, but whatever. Yeah, fine. Um, so, you know, being in that situation where you start using that data against me is going to be a really interesting one for, uh, you know, a predicted model. I think there's an ethical question there again, like, can they use it against you? And how do they use it against you? I mean, I, I, they described this, I mean, I, I pulled this information off, off their, you know, their website. So I didn't just speculate this was how they were doing things. I... You've changed, Sarah, since I've been away. You're just, you know... Well, actually researching yeah, things. Yeah, I know. <laughs> <laughs> it's almost like researching my job title or something. Um, that rather than so, so your initial thought is okay well so starling have always said they don't want to be anything other than the best current account and that they will offer you products from third parties so you get that full service bank uh you know offering in front of you which sounds great on the one hand and in fact for the insurtechs i'm sure they'd love the distribution strategy you know sorry the distribution channel of going through starling and monzo because as james has just waved his starling card at us i know that at least three people around this table have monzo cards uh, at least one over in the corner looking at you laura so from from their perspective it works very well but this kind of the way they're using that data and how they're using that data i think is one of the the most sort of the the, the grittiest not, questions will there not be gdpr opt-outs left right and center though i kind of think i, I know this startup and i think they're really the brand is fantastic and this is a really innovated area i think you life are in that space as well so there's a few life um texts coming through two concerns about this same as you if i go to crosstown donuts and buy a gift for someone else is that gonna you know you. Yeah. i like to buy my wife now and again some stuff from laddie around the way home you know is that going to turn up on my life insurance I mean, schedule how, how are that exactly <laughs> how are they actually like tethering that to me that's an interesting question for them and equally i suppose secondly how are they getting the insurers to let them change the way the rating works yeah. I doubt that. I doubt that's the case. If I'm honest, life insurers are pretty set in their ways, and you know, mortality tables don't lie. Ultimately, I don't think they're that wrong. So, that's the thing. And then the second one is: is if I, you know, twenty insurtechs help these new challenger banks set up these product ecosystems. There's a rug under the feet. Like we've seen what happens in bank insurance and then what they did with insurance. What happens when they become IPO'd and the, the CEO changes to someone who's very corporate? Are these, you know, smaller companies that are either, you know, proving themselves or made it going to have their distribution effectively um, replaced or, or gazumped? I, I don't like that. I think that's a really interesting point. And actually that points out a real failing in the potential for like marketplaces broadly, really, isn't it? So, you know, who owns distribution really sort of owns the money, don't they? And, uh, you know, in this, in this instance where Starling are doing so much with so many different players, they become a bit of a kingmaker, don't they? And it, mm-hmm. I wonder if it becomes almost a, you know, we've seen Amazon uh, be sort of accused of this over the last couple of weeks, haven't they, of uh, starting to disguise, and Google have had these accusations before about disguising what is an ad and what isn't an ad. You know, it's going to become, well, if it's all about the needs, but the one who gives me the best cut on what I'm doing gets to the top of the list when you're looking for life insurance. It's uh, it's a slippy slope, isn't it? You know, is it preferred partners. Did you want to talk about the Starling aspect? Well, yeah, I just thought for Starling, obviously, it's better the more things they can offer via their marketplace, the more usable it will be for their users. So I think on their side, it's very good news that they're partnering more um, more insurtechs or more companies in general. So... So does that play to the point, though? Do you think they should be having more than what? Well, what to, to you know point out what um, James and David just said? Do you think they should have more than one life insurance player in there? I think they probably have to to accurately represent what's 
what's possible for a customer. So if you only have one insure tech that you're partnering with, you don't really represent all the insure techs and all the possible um, policies that someone could get. So as you as you were saying, it makes it so that the uh, that the customer ends up having to choose that life yeah. insurance policy, which might not be good for them. It might not be the best one for them. It's just the one that Starlings decided they like best. Can I can I plug alert something? Yeah, go um, for it. Please yeah, do. So, Anybody else got anything to plug? Uh, yeah, them yeah. up. <laughs> so we've just released our marketplace software to, to onboard providers. It's similar, it, very different model, lower tech barrier to entry. Um, and one of the rules of that in terms of business I've set in, in place exactly as you've triggered there, David, you know, don't be involved in the transaction. I think there's conflict of interest. The minute you take a cut of what happens, mm-hmm. you're in conflict of interest zone and you're not letting the marketplace kind of sort itself out. So uh, one of our um, features of our model is that there isn't a transactional revenue. And actually, I'd love to see Starling doing something similar because then it lets the, the choice convenience in the customer's hands. And almost if any, if there are other people entering that market, at least they're scrapping it out together as opposed to there being a market maker that's distorting things as we've seen google and apple and you mean the taking commission the fact yeah. that Stan takes commission exactly. yeah, that, yeah. Makes, that makes a lot of sense actually i had no idea that you'd done that so well, that was good but uh why do you yes. think he's here no. <laughs> <laughs> he's like oh, i'll come on i've got something to say I'm, I'm starting to try just to think what i can plug now like if that's a thing that we can do it's great we've got some new stickers we've got some new notebooks so we could plug those yeah. leah got any reports out lately Sure do. Oh, come on then. Now's your, now's your shot. What's your latest report? Come on. Um, no, just something new on personal finance management. We'll plug that. Okay. Where do I find it? Twitter? Share, share, ping the link out. <laughs> All behind the paywalls, unfortunately. Ah, uh, but you can get a sneak peek on Business Insider. So if I um, missed a trick then, I plug my thing, but I also plug donuts. I'm not sure I've gone really gone in hard there. We should, we should. This, at this point, you have to declare if the donut place was giving you some sort of sponsorship. It, no, we work no, like Instagram does. No, so. I have gifted them to other people though, so there's my conflict of interest. I was going to say, we can get Michael Duke, the BBC does, and just like bleep out every time anybody says a brand name. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> mm, I'm going to get brand mm. name X now, direct messaging me. Yeah, you've been using these guys, you should use us. Uh, send, if anybody wants to send us any free donuts, just by the way, we're totally up in that. You didn't, you, you didn't get your donuts. Don't do that, because that does happen so like the amount of random alcohol we get sent to the, uh, oh, sent random to the alcohol. please send us yeah. random out come on who doesn't like that um i will move us on our final story today is from insurance age once again and it's that a talent crisis has hit uk brokers um this is brilliant so research by the wonderfully named ecclesiastical reveals that most brokers <laughs> want to hire young talent in order to help with innovation but 52 percent are struggling to recruit as young people don't actually know what brokers are so it's not even that they don't want to be brokers they just don't know what one is so on the one hand i guess yay like the brokerage firms realize they need you know young blood to help them keep up but on the other hand um i, I was saying to david earlier like maybe if we told them it was the meerkat or the guy who sings is the broker <laughs> do you think they'd get that yeah. they're not brokers um, yeah uh, sneers he says Look, i think this is really interesting and again um I am sitting on the new society board for the CII for brokers. I'm the only startup on there, so it's a real privilege. Hopefully they won't kick me off too quickly. But um, it's actually, absolutely, this is a real issue in the industry. And one of the talking points um, that I always try to raise is that there's actually no sort of sector level descriptor for being an insurance professional. Whereas if you go into, you know, Nigel... Uh, he, he's probably a consultant, right? Was actually, he's probably an accountant. So I think as an industry, there's a big existential thing about branding the whole sector's kind of job 
baskets together and not talking about insurance brokers at all really but talking about the different bits inside of this moniker i don't know what the moniker might be i'm going to throw it out there i have no idea what i would call it but it feels like talking about insurance brokers is just the wrong thing because most brokers end up being an underwriter or have been in claims and everyone moves around so you're missing that whole kind of ability to to try different things in the sector I'm going to look at Leah and say, before you started working at Business Insider Intelligence, did you know what a broker was? I did not, no. So I would say Leah's yeah, definitely the youngest person in the room. <laughs> yeah, and also one thing they said that a third of brokers um, want to attract young talent by educating people about brokers in school. And I was wondering how well that would actually work because I'm not sure if when I'm if I when I was 16 if I would have been very interested in hearing about brokers. I think that kind of plays to James's point, right? Like, so if you're in 16 and you're in that careers advice, and we won't go back to the software that everyone in the UK had that told them they should be a prison guard. Um, Sharon, I don't know exactly what I mean. The careers advice you get when you're 16 in school is never kind of anything interesting. It's not like go work for a challenger consultancy and they'll let you ramble and pay you for it, and other people will listen. It's um, go and be a teacher or a doctor or a broker. So I think to James's point, they need to find a better way of, of selling I, the insurance I kinda, as a job. I kind of have one. Let's let's throw this right, out there because okay. this is what I'm going to be lobbying for on, on the various committees. But I, I've always, I like the idea of the central contract that's used in sport. And I also like the idea of the loan system in, say, something like football. And bear with me on this. If you if you qualify to be a lawyer, you tend to go in every department which is a fascinating kind of example because then you've got this broad skill set. Whereas if you're an insurance broker, wouldn't it be great if you got, you know, like the hidden boss thing you were tweeting about earlier, David, if you got some time at some of the companies that you're actually insuring. So that was a bit of your, your kind of training process. You got to work in the claims team or get seconded at an underwriter a few years. And then you've got a generalistic kind of qualification. And that's where I, I see personally the CII's role because they could create that kind of mm-hmm. over, over the top apprenticeship style model. And there you go. Then you've got something that's really varied as opposed to just be a broker, which Completely. as Leah said, no yeah. one's going to do that. Completely gonna... agree with that. You, you would get a much more rounded experience. And actually, you know, you're providing a service in this role, you know, you would get a much better idea of what service was good, you know, at that point. I, th- I think it, I think it's a really interesting one, you know, the, the fact that they're struggling to kind of recruit young people is probably not a, to your point, this is not something you sit at home and go, do you know what, I like, I want to work in insurance. In fact, bizarrely, and then this is like another tangent, so sorry, this happens when I'm here, but if anybody wants a really good laugh, like there's a Will's Feral uh, acceptance speech for for a comedy award that he got, uh, where he said actually all he wanted to do was be an insurance person at the beginning of it. So like this is literally what Will Ferrell wanted to be before he ended up being a comedian. So but go and re- uh, go and watch it on boy. YouTube. I love this. Yeah, I, I like it was in my it was a like the end of a random three hour YouTube binge type thing. But go check that out. It's really good fun. Um, but yeah, I'm not really that surprised that they're struggling with um, attracting young people because. Um, really, I think probably all round in that depth of specialism, you know, they're struggling to attract young people anyway. Do you see how like the Zurich thing is a really good example of the dots that can be joined? Uh, you know, a startup is resource poor, talent hungry, can't afford proper, proper going rate. If someone like a Zurich was to have a central pool of people that were really talented and they could afford to, you know, keep the pension, de-risk the scenario, they could start seconding people to startups and helping them. And then you've got yourself that revolving door of great talent, great experience. And, and obviously if the people go in there and come out a more rounded individual, that Zurich are going to benefit from that. The likes of Zurich, sorry. Yeah. I think that's something, I think you're right. Insurance is actually missing a trick there because I speak to a lot of large financial services companies and a lot of them do second, move people around the building, especially if you're on like a graduate 
program at any of the very big other banks or uh, like payments providers or anything like that. They'll bring you in as an intern or an graduate and then they, you will start in this department and then move in that department and then move into that department. And I think you're completely right. Certainly with financial services, like I still don't know what half the people in insurance do and I've been doing this podcast for a year. Like there are so many jobs and the titles don't really mean anything and you don't actually know any, whether you actually want to do that job until you start well, you're, you're an Imagine you're an imperial MBA and you're graduating, do you want to work for Anorak or do you want to work for an insurance broker? Mm-hmm. So the InsurTech thing can be the sprat that catches the, the mackerel. And obviously there's a, you know, a reciprocity to that inside the industry. It, they, they benefit from better new startups and a bigger ecosystem. But, it, but it, it, is, is it not, um, in many big organisations though, the, the inability to attract the people that you want is usually not really down to what you do. It's the way that you do it. So having the environment that's actually attractive to anybody let alone you know insurance brokers no this intended there but you know being in a situation where you want to create an environment that's attractive to the younger population then well you need to like you know talk and act and you know provide capability in a different way don't you so you know this is much about the attractiveness as a the insurance industry as a whole or even really just big companies like big companies kind of forget that talent is the most important thing that they all have in their organization and then get to the point where you're managing custom you know employee numbers not uh, individuals and I, I think that's probably a much wider problem that we see in pretty much every big company and i think we need to ink in the fact that there's quite a secure industry out there. Brokers probably haven't got a great reputation in the UK for personal line stuff, but they're still a linchpin of the commercial market. And working for someone like an Ed or a you know Willis Towers Watson is quite a secure, decent job. Yeah, so, and that's what sells to younger people these days as well. Security. I think we've. I think we've just what we've done, guys, is uh, create some kind of educational pitch here. I think you know we'll have to go into some schools and see if we can win some people around. That sounds like a really good, fun idea for an episode. So, Laura, like uh, on that one. Students, you want the students? Oh my goodness! Can we do the eight mile pitch battle instead? Is yeah, that, that sounds yeah. a lot that. more fun, actually. Yeah, so no. scratch that. All right, eight mile pitch. Leah, welcome to the show. It's completely bonkers. Um, and on that note, um, I'm going to wrap up this conversation. But thank you so much to everyone for joining me for this particularly special episode. Um, where can the listeners find out more about you? Do you have a website, a Twitter handle? Uh, how about you, Leah? Do, where can people find these reports if they want? To, or where can people find out where they can buy these reports? And where can people find you? Um, they can find about the reports on Business Insider on the website, and they can find about me on Twitter at Leah Nottinger. Perfect. And I'm so sorry I said your name wrong. I've just oh, realized that's that okay. Earlier. People always do. <laughs> I should know better. Uh, we used to work together. Um, James, how about you? Where can people find you? So I'm on Twitter and LinkedIn, James JW York. And uh, people can find out about our marketplace on Worry and Peace and hit the Become a Provider button in the top right. Brilliant. And David, what are you going to give me this week? Uh, let's go email, shall we? So david Ooh. at 11fs.com. Uh, that's just, you know, not me sideways. I was expecting some weird gaming platform that I'd never heard of before. You bait me into it every time. <laughs> um, and you can find me on Twitter at Sarah Kashansky. That wraps up another InsureTech Insider. Thank you so much to all our guests. As always, you can find the show on Twitter at InsTech Insiders. And if you like what you've heard this week, don't forget to subscribe to our podcast and please, please leave us a review on iTunes. If you like this format, also let us know. We're trying some new things. Um, And if you have any suggestions or feedback, please reach out on Twitter or email podcasts at 11fs.com.